John asked me to, to speak, and I uh, kind of already had the title and my three points. And, uh, and then he taught the last two messages, and essentially the last two messages were like what I thought my message was going to be. And uh, so that's fine. But in thinking about this week, you know, we've always, when we preach, and it's a good thing, we always say, oh, if you'd open your Bibles, we always preach from a text. And we expound on a text, and that's great. We need to do that, and uh, you don't want to be somewhere where they're not doing that. But this morning, I want my text to be John's last two messages. So if you open your Bible to John's previous two messages, that'll give you the context <laughs> for this morning. But what I'd like to do this morning is less of a sermon or less instruction, like what we normally do when we're together like this. And I want to do something that's more devotional. Um, and, and, and in a way, everything always overlaps. We're always... In our sermons and in our preaching, we should always be devotional in them. Obviously, devotion is just our worship, our adoration of Christ. And that, that's, I'm not saying that we don't do that normally. I'm just saying this morning, instead of um, getting into a text and seeking to understand that text, I just want to pause for a second. And like I said, John's really laid the groundwork in the last two messages for what I want to say today. And so I want to just take a second together as a family and, and just continue what's already been happening here through Mr. Murphy's word, through Ben's songs, and just worship Christ. And, and just, just allow ourselves to, to pause for a moment and, and not ever be learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth, but instead just, just pause and think about what he's given us. You know, I'll, I want this morning to be like the blind man who got healed from Jesus, by Jesus and he went... And they drug him before the Pharisees. And after all that, he finally runs into Jesus. And, and Jesus says, I'm the one you're looking for. And it says that he bowed down and he worshiped. And so this morning, I, we know who Jesus is. And I just want to take a few minutes just together, collectively as a family, just to worship who Jesus is. And, and worship is not just a mind and heart activity. It's not something we just do in here when Ben's singing. It's, it's an attitude of our life. It's, it's a collection of our everyday, you know, it's what we do. It's how we live. Worship is, is adoration. It's, it's respecting and adoring something bigger than you. You know, you can worship athletes. You can worship all sorts of things. And we, we as Christians choose to worship Jesus. And so what I want to do today is, is take in what we've been hearing in the Word and choose to worship Jesus this morning because He's infinitely worthy of our worship and our adoration. So the message this morning, I've got terrible handwriting, but I want to write on the board because if it's devotional, y'all don't have to take notes as fast. I didn't say you don't have to take notes, just not as fast. Uh, So what I want to call it is the power of a personal God. The power of a personal God. and I got that phrase just from praying about what God wanted me to, to speak on this morning. And so I've been praying about that. And there's power just in the fact that we have a God who is personal. The fact that we have a personal God is unique. And there's power in it. Daniel, Daniel 7 He said it this way. He says, those who know the Lord are mighty and do exploits. And if you read the whole chapter, what he's talking about is civilization crumbling around your ears and kingdoms falling and utter destruction and chaos. And yet in the middle of all that, he says, but those who knew the Lord were mighty and did exploits. So the question before us then is, what is it about our God? That knowledge of him empowers exploits. What is it about God that enables ordinary people to withstand collapse of civilization, to withstand the collapse of personal life and personal problems? What, what is it about our God that he could say that? That those who know the Lord are mighty and do exploits. That's, that's a big statement. 
So before we look into answer that question is how does knowledge of who God is empower us, I want to clarify something real quick, and that's this word power. Okay, so the word power, everybody's got a different idea in their mind when we say power, right? So probably first thing pops in your mind would be something like government. Government has power over people, right? People in authority have power. They have control over people. So that's one kind of power that a lot of people spend their life trying to get, is that kind of power of control through money, through influence, through politics. Somehow they want to control people. Or there's just charismatic people who have power over people because of their personality. So there's that kind of power. Then there's the physical kind of power where you can lift weights, you can get strong, you can lift heavy objects, you can physically overpower adversity and hardship. Or there's mental power, the, the power not to be mentally overcome or fatigued by trouble. Or there's even supernatural power, the power to raise the dead, to walk on water, to do supernatural things that can't be explained in the physical realm. There's that kind of power as well. But I think the power that we're talking about when we say the power of a personal God is, is different. If you turn over to John chapter 1. <clears throat> John 1, starting in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything that was made that was made. In Him was life, and this life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Let's read verse 4 again. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. I think life is a better word because... The more I thought about it, every form of power that we can think of is something that we control, right? If I, even if I have power to raise the dead, it's something I can choose to do with my hand, right? I can lay hands on the dead and, and see them come back to life. And so in a sense, there's a control over that. And, and most of what people do in order to gain power is in order to control things, right? You don't like to be pushed around, so you get stronger, you don't like other people telling you what to do, so you manipulate or you figure out a way to get in control. I think the word, the power that God gives us is life. And there's a big difference between life and power. Now, there is power in life, but power is something that is given to us that we then control, but life is something that's altogether outside of us. We have no control over that life, right? Because it's not ours, it's His. So the power of God, the power that comes from a personal relationship from God is not a feat in the gym, or it's not an academic knowledge. It's the life of God that gives us power. It's the life of God in our lives that empowers us to have the power that God gives us. And Hebrews, who, the writer of Hebrews said it this way, that Jesus had in him the power of an indestructible life. See, scientists can do a lot of things and technology can do a lot of things, but what it can never do is create life. You know that, right? They can clone, they can duplicate, they can reproduce, but they cannot create life. But our God promises to create in us new life. Something that can't be controlled because it's not from any other source but Him. Something that can't be diminished or overpowered becomes it comes from the source of life. So the power that comes from God is new life. Something that's not what you had before improved. Something that's not you a little bit stronger. It's something that's new altogether. The implications of this in practical everyday life are huge. Think about this. All ages. High school tomorrow. Whatever it is, wherever your age is. There's a world of difference between waking up tomorrow morning and trying harder and waking up tomorrow morning with new life in your chest. Amen. There is a dramatic difference. There's a difference between going and hitting the weights today and waking up and being just a little bit stronger, but you still can't lift that. You can go lift 100 pounds tomorrow and you can only do 75, but you can't lift 125 yet. There's a big difference between that mindset and this mindset that in your chest is new, indestructible life. Life that can't be destroyed or repressed. New life, not what you had before, but something altogether new. 
So when we say power, what I want you guys to think is not, maybe I'll be a little bit stronger tomorrow, or maybe I can do some supernatural feat. But what I want you to think is new life, new power, new desire, new interest, new focus, new mindset inside me. And that is the power that we're talking about. So our first point here is when we say power, what we mean is God's power is God's life. So now that we've established what the word power, what we're going with, we need power, the question then becomes, so how, how does knowing that the power of a personal God, that that power is God's life, how does that enable people, empower people to do exploits? To do things that no one else around them can do? To withstand forces that none of, nobody around them can withstand? How can we do that? Well, the first reason I want to look at is the fact that our God is unique. So we're asking the question, how is it those people in Daniel, when the world was crumbling around their ears, how were they able to do mighty to, because their knowledge of God? What was it about their knowledge of God that enabled them to do exploits when all the world was melting down around them? What was it in them that was not in everyone else? So the first thing we want to say is that because their God is unique. All right. Now listen up, boys and girls. <laughs> We're going to go to class for just a few minutes, okay? But I think it's good. I think it'll encourage your faith. But what I want to do in the next 10 minutes is I want to do a brief overview of all of the religions in the world. But I think this is important. Because what an overview of all the religions in the world tell us is what we make God to be. But what the God of the Bible is, as we'll see, is way different than any God that we could create. So I think that we can take all the world religion and we can, we can label them into five categories. And I found this graphic online. So this isn't original with me. I thought it was a helpful graphic. But we're going we're gonna to take all of the world's religions and we can put them into just five categories. Pretty much any religion you can think of will fall into one of these five categories. Okay? So the first guys up here... People who believe that there is no God. We call them atheists or agnostics. Buddhists are often, often also fall into this category. These are people who deny either the existence of God altogether or the ability to know who God is. <clears throat> well, where does that leave us? Let's, let's ask for a minute, what happens if there's no God? Well, if there is no God, then there's no ultimate, or you could say transcendent. When I say transcendent, which I might say again, it just means superseding, bigger than, past everything else. Transcendent is what goes beyond everything that's around it. <clears throat> so what is the overwhelming, what is our purpose here in life if there is no God? If there's no transcendent purpose, if there's no one purpose that supersedes all other purposes, then what are we doing here? Well, the long and short of it is to get mine. Right? If there's no life after death, if there's no God in heaven, if there's no one that's going to require anything from my actions, and there is no God, then I'm only responsible for myself, right? And how I live this life. What everybody else does has no effect on me. I once argued with an atheist, and uh, I told him, I said, man, I'm the only one in this conversation that has the right to make disciples, you can't make disciples if you're an atheist. Because if you're an atheist and you believe there's no God, you have no right to tell other people what they should believe. Let them go their merry way. Whatever they believe is giving them happiness, which is the chief end of man in that case, right? If there is no God, if there's no one that we answer to, what does it matter what everyone believes? Only Christians have a right. Only people who believe in a God have a right to make disciples. So we got our atheist. And here's the thing, though. Because when trouble comes, 
You have no one to answer to, but you have no one to help you. You are totally and 100% on your own the rest of your life. And the odds are not in your favor. All right, so there's the atheist. Next group of people are people that believe that there are many gods, multiple gods, tons of gods. You got your Hinduism, which is after Christianity, or what you call Judaism, I guess, because it's the Old Testament, but they're one of the oldest religions. They believe that there's tons of gods. There's a spiritual reality. They don't deny spirituality. They believe there's all sorts of influences in the world. And, but they don't really, they don't believe that there's anything you do except try to live good enough to become one of them. That life's this cycle. You just die and repeat and die and repeat and you come back to life. And so your goal in life is just to live a little bit better than what you lived before. I'm not sure if it's true or not. I read somewhere that they believe Buddha was reincarnated 20,000 times before he finally hit nirvana. So here's the thing. If we believe that there are multiple gods, here's the, the fact. If there is more than one god, a god being a transcendent being that's above everything else, then you have no way of knowing which one you'd be better off pleasing, correct? And if there's two gods, one of them's going to have a different opinion on something, even if it's just the color of the curtains, but they're going to have a difference of opinion. So at the end of the day, having many gods is not very much better than having no gods because you're still left to decide for yourself which one you're going to please and how you're going to please them and how your action to please that god is going to better you in your next go-around. And notice also in both of these, there's nothing that helps you here and now. In fact, that is why the evil of the caste system over in India has existed this long. Because under this mindset, you get what's coming to you. So you're born in the dirt and in the mire. You're born to be kicked. You're born to be mistreated. Why? Because you got what you would deserve. You displeased one of the multiple gods. And so now you've got to live your life in misery the rest of your life. So also in this view, you're stuck on your own. Whatever happens to you in, the, in this life, you've got to grin and bear it. The next one is what they call the New Age religion. I, I think of this uh, as humanism myself. But New Age is this idea that uh, it's, it's pretty much America. <laughs> If you want to know, just pick up the newspaper. It's this idea that, that, well, sure, there's spiritual realities, and there's who knows how, if there's God or not a God or many gods or one God, but does it really matter? What really matters is that you find whatever path makes you happy, you pursue that path, and in pursuit of that path, you'll find your happiness, which is ultimately the only thing that matters. Now, guys, we all have to look long and hard at our own lives because we live in this culture. See, to a new age or a humanistic mindset, there is no transcendent, infinite God. There's no one that you answer to. This is exhibited with things like, it's my body, I can do whatever I want to it. If it's your body, you can do whatever you want to it. Who is God? You are. Why? Because you say that you control that body. Now, I'd like to point out that you didn't create that body, so how could you control it? But that's the idea. Our whole idea of rights. This is my right. My independence. I want to do it my own way. I think outside the box. You guys, all of these things in one degree or another are just manifestations of this idea that what ultimately matters is that I get myself happy. And we all have that in our hearts because ever since we fell, our main goal in life has been to make ourselves happy. But once again, the problem becomes, just like the three previous ones, is that there's no help coming. And the other thing is that... <clears throat> What happens when you're in your little closed circuit over here and some other little closed circuit comes along? And what he does offends your happiness. 
at that moment, somebody's got to make a judgment call, right? Somebody's got to say, that's wrong and this is right. The only way that one closed circuit, one on my own God, can tell another on my own God what is right and wrong is if there's one that's higher than the other one, right? We have no moral authority if there is not a God that is bigger than ourselves, than who we are. And the fact is, is that this is a self-defeating mindset. It defeats itself. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in everyday life. We have to have laws. We have to have constraints. We have to have things that tell us to do this and not do that. And by doing that, we're denying the very reality that this religion is trying to create. This idea that everybody's right. It doesn't work. Somebody has got to be right. And somebody's got to be wrong. If, if God A says to God B, I don't believe in gravity, one of them is going to be right and one of them is going to be wrong. And don't say there's a difference between science and morality. It's the same thing. If God A says, don't lie to me because lying is bad, and God B says, I prefer to lie, it makes me happy, <laughs> who's correcting who? You can't do it. But you guys, the reason that this worldview exists is not because it logically carries out. The only reason it exists is because it absolves you of personal responsibility. That is the truth. Get out there and witness a little bit. And you'll find out that the biggest arguments against Christianity have nothing to do with the facts of Christianity. They have to do with the repercussions of Christianity. It's not the God of the Bible that scares people. It's what if the God of the Bible is who He says He is that scares people. Because if the God of the Bible is who He says He is, then we all have personal responsibility. And the reason this worldview exists is because it can absolve you of all personal responsibility. All you've got to do is find that little place of personal peace. All you have to do is find a way to excuse your behavior. All you have to do is find some science or psychology to, to give you a reason for what you're doing. And you have no responsibility whatsoever for your actions. You're totally free to fly around. And that's the only reason, because at the end of the day, guys, everybody knows there's a right and wrong. If you didn't know there was a right and wrong, you would never be offended by anything. Why would you be? You couldn't be offended by anything. There's no right and wrong. But stick two of this worldview in the same room, and one of them support Trump, and one of them dis not support Trump, and I guarantee you somebody's going to claim a moral authority. Yeah, that's right. So guys, at the end of the day, this doesn't work logically. And at the end of the day, it leaves you still all by yourself. At the end of the day, there's still no one coming to help you. Our fourth one, then, <clears throat> is best represented in the uh, religion of Islam, which is the, currently the second biggest religion in the world. But it, I think it's also represented, maybe in some ways, in our own hearts and in aberrations of true Christianity and in Judaism. But it's this. This is the first group now that has admitted to there being a transcendent God. An infinite, transcendent God. They believe that. They believe that the world was created and is ordered and will ultimately be held responsible to a transcendent God. That there is a God separate from all of us who's in charge of the universe, who's in, who makes decisions on whether what we're doing is right and wrong, and will hold us ultimately responsible for our actions. But there was one word I left out of all of those descriptions of this God, and it was the word personal. That God is not a personal God. That God stands aloof in heaven, waiting to see if you're going to do enough good things to make it in when you finally die. And you guys don't think this hasn't crept into Christianity. All the St. Peter's jokes are just evidence of this. That we think that when we get to heaven, there's going to be a knock on a door. And we think that at that moment, there's going to be scales of some sort held up. And somehow that's going to determine whether we're in or out. That's foolishness, guys. It's not the Bible. Jesus came so that we would know right now whether we're in or out. And that's the beauty of Christianity over and against all other forms, false forms of Christianity, I would say, or Islam, is that you can have assurance here and now. 
because we have a personal God. See, this, this group is right in the fact that they admit that there is a moral compass, that there is somebody somewhere not only had to create this world, but is calling the shots on right and wrong. That's right, and that's good. And they also recognize that at the end of their life, they are going to be responsible for what they did. But that God is not going to help you either. That God's not going to let you know if you're in His grace or not. That God's not going to tell you if you're one of His. That God leaves you to leave, live your life in a scramble to hope that you can do enough good things tomorrow to cancel out the debt you incurred today. And here's something else, guys. And why, one reason why all of you can rest assured that the Bible and God is true is that all of these are answering the same question. And it's what's going to happen when I die. It is written in the hearts of men that there is a God and that you are going to answer to Him. All of these are attempts to try to get away from that responsibility. But it's true. And it's written on our hearts and we know it. We know that those things that we did, do, are doing, will do, we know that one day we're going to have to answer for those things. We know it. And that's why the Bible doesn't start with answering atheist objections. The Bible starts with saying, in the beginning, God. The Bible starts with an assumption that there's God because he says that he has written it on our hearts that we know there's a God. So now... <clears throat> We said, our God is not like those gods, so how is our God different? Our God came to us. See, not only is our God infinite, infinite in His justice, as in no act ever goes unrequited, there's no debt that never gets paid, there's no promise that never falls short. There's no word spoken that doesn't become fulfilled. Not only is he infinite in his justice, not only is he infinite in his wisdom, not only is he infinite in his knowledge of what we've done, what we will do, where we will go, not only is he infinite in all those things, but he's also personal. Deeply personal. Our God did not leave us down here. You did not wait for me to cry out to you, but you clothed yourself in frail humanity. You guys, our God is unique from all the other gods. See, if we were left on our own and we didn't have the Bible, that would be our options. If we didn't have the God that was revealed to us in this Bible, we would have no other options but one of those four. We would be left totally on our own to figure out if we're going to make it, how we can make it, what we need to do to make it. Are you in or am I in? How is this going to work out? But we don't. We have a Bible. And the Bible tells us that our God came down to us. That our God's a personal God. That His salvation is today. Today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart, but let me in. Our God is definitely unique from every God of man's creation. You can lock yourself in a room and think for days and days on what you would want your God to be like, and I guarantee you, he would have to fall in one of these four categories. It requires divine revelation for us to see a God of the Bible. It requires divine revelation for a God of the Bible to exist. And why is that? The first reason is that the God of the Bible is proactive. See, all the other gods wait for you to do something. All the other gods stand back to see what you will do. To see if when you die at the end of your life, if you will have done enough things. And then based on that, they will decide whether you're a good guy or a bad guy. But our God is proactive in that He took it upon Himself to come to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God is proactive. Amen. And that proactive should give us power. Why? Because that life is coming to us. We don't have to go get it. We're not, we're not, it's not required on us to go and grab that life. It's proactive. It comes to us. Our God is unique from all the gods of men's creation. The next reason why our God is unique is because when He comes, 
He brings with him a complete salvation. On men's best day, on the happiest day of an atheist's life, he ultimately knows that everything's not okay. Ultimately, we all know that there's something broken inside of us. Ultimately, we all know that we're lost, that we don't treat people like we should, that we don't love people like we could, that we don't care about other people like we should. We know these things intrinsically in us. And intrinsically in us, we can't forget the sins of our past. And they all pile up on us. And see, all of men's ideas of what a God could look like and what a God should be like left you all by yourself to fix that. But when Jesus came, he not only was proactive in his coming, he brought with him a complete salvation. He brought with him the ability that today you could hear his voice and, and today you could experience his salvation. His salvation was not partial. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all of your sins and heals all of your diseases. There's nothing that's left undone in the salvation of God on behalf of his people. I'm telling you guys that our God is unique from all the other options. Our God is unique from if you were left on your own to come up with your own idea of what a God is. And I'm telling you that you don't want to be left with a God of your own making. You want this God to come to you. You want this God to save you. You don't want to be saved by your own God. You don't want to try to absolve mentally your own responsibility through some creation of a God that suits your purposes better. You want to be saved by this God who was proactive in his coming to you, is complete in his salvation. And the last way that he's unique, and then we already mentioned this, is that he is personal. See, all the other Buddhas and the Imams and the, the smart guys, they always what? They create for themselves this aura of knowledge, right? Some wise man sitting on a cleft of a rock, and if you climb a mountain, you can get to him. That's not how our God operates. He's not waiting for you to travel to some certain location and attain some feat of maturity or physical prowess or some sort of mental awareness. He's not waiting for you to dig down deeper within yourself. He is personal. He wants you to personally know him today, to personally be acquainted with who he is starting right now, this moment. This moment, he wants you to personally be acquainted with who he is. And in that is all that power that we talked about. See, now we're back to that life. Because those who know the Lord are powerful and do exploits. So see, the one that experienced God's personally are the ones who have that life, that power that we started off talking about. So guys, there is great hope and there is power in salvation. I want you guys to turn over to Luke 15. And I'm not going to get bogged down here. I spent the last like four months in this chapter and the last month and a half at prison preaching out of this chapter. This chapter is incredible. But I want you guys to see this, guys. This, this God that we're talking about, this God who is proactive, complete in his salvation and personal, he's the God of the Bible. Okay, so in Luke 15, we all know it gets to the story of the prodigal son, right? But the story opens with Jesus hanging out with sinners. To eat with sinners in those days was to identify with them. It wasn't just like you happened to be a Burger King at the same time and you're eating lunch. That wasn't what it was. When you sat down with sinners, you identified with them. It's like, I'm with them. And it says they came to Jesus. And so in doing that, the Pharisees asked Jesus a question. Because see, the Pharisees, they're in this box right here. They're in the gods up there. And we have to earn our way to them. So the Pharisees look at the sinners... And they say, it's obviously those guys are not pleasing the one transcendent God and personal, but we are. And yet this guy who claims to be the son of God is hanging out with people that have clearly offended the one God. Why are you doing that, Jesus? And Jesus answers them, and we don't have time to go into to the answer, but he answers them just by telling them two stories and then the parable. But the two stories are his answer to the question, why am I identifying with sinners? And the parable is a challenge to invite all of us to identify with God and identifying with the sinner. But what I want to focus on, we'll get to the prodigal in a minute, but let's read in verse 8. So he's answering the question, why, why do you eat with them, Jesus? And Jesus tells them two stories. The second story he tells them is, what woman having ten pieces of silver 
and loses one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently until she find it. And when she has found it, she called her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. So Jesus is answering the question, why do you hang out with sinners? What's his answer? His answer is, because it's what my father loves. That's his answer. His answer is, I am doing this because when I do this, it brings joy to God's heart. Now, we're going to get into the, how we bring joy to God's heart in a minute, but what we're focused on right now is God's heart, right? We're, we're focused on how is God unique. I'm going to tell you, you will not find a picture like this in the Quran or in the writings of Buddha or Hinduism. You will not find a God like this. Go back to verse 10 and tell me, who is the one in verse 10 that's rejoicing? Who's rejoicing in verse 10? Well, it says, in the presence of the angels. I never read that before that way. In the presence of the angels. Well, who's in the presence of the angels? God's in the presence of the angels. So that means that like the woman rejoiced over the one lost coin when she finds it, when a lost person comes home, our God jumps off the throne and says, Yes! Somebody just came home! Amen. In the presence of the angels, there's rejoicing! For thousands of years now, lost people have become found people. And every time Jesus has jumped off the throne and in the angels' presence, they have seen the Father rejoice over you. Over slave traders and prostitutes, over drug addicts, over religious people. Every one of them, God's jumped off his throne and said, yes, that is awesome. You mean to tell me there's no power in a God like this? You mean to tell me that that doesn't set you free to know that the creator of the universe jumps off his throne when you come into his presence? You guys, our God's not like other gods. Our God's not like the way you pictured him to be. Our God's not the way that you reasoned him out to be. Our God is way better. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one lost person that comes home. And you mean to tell me that our God's like all this? All the world overview classes that want to try to say Christianity is like all the other religions? There's nothing like Christianity. And I tell you that man on his best day could never dream up a God that would do that over people that hate him. That would do that over people that crucified his son. There is no human imagination that could create a God that would love like that. There is power in a personal God. There is power in the fact that our God is personal, that he personally cares about us, that he's personally invested in every one of us, that he personally wants to make sure that we make it home. There is power in that. Perfect love cast out fear. Could there be a better example of perfect love than a God who sees all your sins? He doesn't ignore one of them. He sees the way you've talked, the way you've been, the way you've thought, the what you've done. He's seen all of it. And yet when you turn your ship and you come home and admit his lordship in his life, he jumps off the throne and says that my plans are to prosper and to give you health and to give you well-being and to bring you into my kingdom. My plan is to bring you home. Our God is unique in his personal, intimate eagerness to have relationship with us. And there's not one of us in this room that deserve it. There's not one of us that could merit this. We could spend the rest of our life trying to do good things and we wouldn't merit the creator of the universe jumping off his throne in joy because we decided to admit that he was right all along. So our God is unique. And this complete salvation, guys, it has nothing to do with a pass. See, all the world religions, what they're asking is how can I alleviate myself from responsibility so that I can go on the rest of my life with some level of peace, right? If I know I'm good with the man upstairs, then I'm okay. But God's salvation is something altogether different. It's not a pass. It's life. 
See, a pass is just a get-out-of-jail-free card that you stick in your pocket and you walk around. And maybe that could be like your power card. You can pull that out and say, no, I, I, I prayed a prayer or I did this or I appeased one of the multiple gods or I made myself happy, whatever it is. I've got this pass and now I've absolved mentally myself from my responsibility, but that's not salvation. That's men's work because men have a guilty conscience, so they want to alleviate their conscience. But God's salvation is this. God's salvation is life. Andrew Murray said it this way, and I think it's the most profound thing. You should write it down and think about it for a long time. He said this, salvation is being led. Salvation is being led. See, the salvation that God works out isn't about just giving you a card so that you can go about your merry way and do what you want and hopefully stand before him one day and him let you in. The salvation he does is he imparts his life to you, which empowers you to live the life that pleases him, which is the best life you can live. So as we get ready to wind it down here, next question is then how, I'm not going to write all this out, how can we experience this personal God? If it's true, everything that we've said, and God is that much better than all the alternatives, and that there is a way to experience life in which it is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. Well, how is that possible? How is it possible that I can go to school and be different than everybody else? How is it possible that I can make right decisions and actually want to read my Bible and actually want to love people and actually want to have other people share in what I've found in our unique, one and only true God. How is that possible? Because it's not me. It's not my personality. It's not who I am. It's not what I feel like. So that's all great that God's that way. But how am I supposed to experience that? <clears throat> I don't know how fast we've been going, but we're going to go faster. <laughs> Back in Luke 15. Okay, so he answers that question and he says, the reason I'm hanging out with sinners is because God loves to save. God loves it. And let me tell you guys this, your greatest joy is your identity. What you love the most, what brings you the most happiness in life, that's your identity. Well, what does that tell us about who God is? If God's greatest joy is to save lost people. And lost things. That should tell us a lot about the heart of God. But he answers him by saying that. So now he's going to go into the parable of what we call the prodigal son. And I want to rename that into the parable of the two lost sons. Because calling it the prodigal of the lost son only talks about one son. And Jesus didn't talk about one. He talked about two. Okay, now the context, don't forget the context. The context of this parable is that there are sinners that are fellowshipping with God. But there are religious people that are outside. That's the context of this story. So Jesus tells a story, and we're not going to read it because we don't have time, but everybody knows the story of the prodigal son, right? There's the younger son. He wants all the money now. He takes the money. He goes and he spends all the money on prostitutes and drugs and parties and having a good time and doing whatever he wants. At the end of the day, he finds out that none of those things bring him happiness, and he ends up in a pig pen. Everything's gone now. All of his hopes and dreams are gone. He's in a pig pen. Well, the whole time this has been going on, there's another son. What's the other son been doing? He's been faithfully going to work every day. He's been doing what his dad told him to do. Slop the hogs, I'll slop the hogs. Mow that field, I'll mow that field. But what we are shocked to find out at the end of the parable is that both sons are lost. See, Jesus paints a picture of two sons that could not be more different. One of them is loyal. One of them sticks it out and does hard work. One of them pulls him up by his bootstraps and makes his way in the world. One of them stays on the family farm. The other guy spends all of his money, makes his dad sell assets so he could have cash to go spend on bad pursuits, goes off to the city, leaves his life behind, wastes it all, ends up feeding pigs to a foreigner, which if you know anything about the audience that Jesus was talking to, that is as bad as it can be. There wasn't anything lower than feeding pigs for a foreigner who apparently didn't even pay him enough to eat. So we've got these two polar opposite people, right? One of them has to be right, and one of them has to be wrong, right? And all of the people listening to this story would have immediately known 
that the elder son was right because he had done everything he was supposed to do. But we get to the end of the story, and if you don't remember it, he comes in from the field, the younger son's come home, been forgiven, in a party that the father set up. The father throws a party for the younger son coming home. The older son comes home and says, forget about it. If that's the way you want to be, he even goes so far as to say, if that's how you want to spend your money with your son, you do it. That's not me. And in that moment, Jesus identifies him as also being lost. So if we're going to understand how to have a relationship with the personal God of the universe, the first thing we have to do is understand what it means to be lost. See, if we don't understand what it means to be lost, we'll be like the people listening to Jesus' story who assumed that being lost was not being like the bad people and being found was being like the good people. Both bad and good being determined on what you decided bad and good looked like. But Jesus comes and turns their whole world upside down and places them in with lost people. Now he just said, he set this up by saying that lost people are what's on his father's heart. His father wants lost people to be found. And in the parable, the father wants lost people to be found because he invites the elder son to come in to the party and not be lost anymore. But the fact is, is that they were both lost. And we find out that location, that personality, that exterior actions, none of those things were the cause of them being lost. They did all of those things. Both sons did all of those things and the whole time were lost. One of them never left the family farm. One of them went off as far as he could get away from everything he'd ever known. And both were totally lost. So what does that tell us about lostness? What does that show us about what it actually means to be lost? It's this, is that at the end of the day, both sons wanted nothing to do with the will of the Father. Both sons wanted the benefits of being associated with the Father, but neither son wanted to live the will of the Father. Neither son wanted to see the Father's will be executed through them. And that separated them from who the father was. Because at the end of the chapter, he tells the elder son, the elder son says, you've never given me anything. And he said, son, this whole time, everything that I've had is yours. So why wasn't the elder son partaking? Because he was lost. He had never come home. His location was there, but his heart wasn't. And that's what our God addresses, is the heart that none of the other religions can. The heart is where we are lost and where we are found. And here's the next thing, guys, is that the son's lostness was not cured when he abandoned the prostitutes. I want you to think about this. What happens to the younger son if he spends the rest of his life feeding pigs? Now, hold on before you, well, obviously he needs to go home. In America, we don't. In America, we clap for the boy who gets down and makes something of himself, right? He goes and sows his wild oats, and then he runs out and he runs into a hard time, and then he falls all the way down to rock bottom, so he goes and gets himself a job at McDonald's, right? And we say, oh, there you go. He pulled him up by his bootstraps. That's our mentality. It is. It's how we look at hard work, determination. We do these things. Oh, now he's found, right? No. He's not found. Abandoning those activities didn't pay his bill. Abandoning those activities didn't change his heart. He was still the same person. That's what Jesus is driving at. It's not location. It's not just your activities. Your activities are just a manifestation of who you really are. That's what your activities are. So he left the prostitutes, but he wasn't found. He was found, I think it's in verse 17 where it says, he came to his senses and he realized that the poorest in his father's house were treated better than the richest anywhere else. And so the next thing we have to do is we understand what loss means, and then we've got to understand what it means to be found. Because here's the problem, guys. We live in America, and there's a thing I like to call self-determination, is that we really believe that we can treat Christianity like a buffet of entrees, and we can pick and choose the parts we like and don't like. 
That's self-determination. And ultimately, as soon as you make a decision, when God tells you to do this, and you decide to do something else, what have you just done? You've just reverted back to humanism. For you to make a law that supersedes God's law requires for you to be more transcendent than God. It's the only way it works. If you're not more transcendent than God and you make up your own law, it's a dumb law. But if you're more transcendent than God, if you're bigger than who God is and you make up your own law, then you can live however you want, right? See, that's what being lost is. Being lost is being self-determined. I will do this. I'll go to church on Sunday. And I'll pray once a week, and I might even read my Bible. But witness, no way. Love my neighbor. Love the person who spitefully used me. Love people that I know are still talking behind my back. No way. Not doing it. But see, to do that establishes ourselves above God in the hierarchy of who is God. And that is the definition of being lost. And it, in our culture, is all over. It's in all of our hearts. We want to take what we want of Christianity and throw out the rest. That's why you have all these one-dimensional churches that only emphasize this one thing to the detriment of everything else, and they become so one-sided they can't walk straight. It's because they're creating their own system. Jesus is perfectly balanced. What do I mean by that? The Pharisees couldn't answer him, and the publicans and the, and the sinners sought him out. How did he live in such a perfectly pristine theological way that sinners would find him out, would come find him, and yet the most religious people of his day couldn't answer his theological arguments? But what do we do? Well, I don't like theology, so I'm not going to get into it. Or, I love theology, I'm going to drive everybody away with it. One of the two, but we don't put the two together. We don't keep pristine theology and love our neighbor as ourselves. We just don't do it. And in doing that, we create preeminence for ourselves. That is being lost. I'm sorry, it is. According to this parable, that is being lost. When we self-determine our own route through life of what we will and won't do, when we will and won't do it, that is self-determination. That is not Christianity. Christianity has nothing to do with you getting what you want or what you think you deserve. Christianity has to do with the Lordship of Christ, which is what we come when we understand what it means to be found. So what did it mean for the two sons to be found? Being found... And get this, guys. Being found is not getting what we want. It's not. And yet we think that's what it is. We think that if we quit messing up, or if we don't do that again, that then God will give us what we want. It's not how it works, is it? What happened in the parable? When was the younger son found? The younger son was found... When he realized that he didn't know what he wanted, but he knew who had everything that he needed. Let's say that again. Being found is not getting what you want. Being found is realizing that you don't know what you want. Because you don't. Because every time you're left to your own decision and you look at that or you go there or you do that, what do you have? You have remorse. You guys, I go into prison. It's fairly obvious to preach it. Obviously, you don't get what you want. You guys, and we're no different outside of prison. We're no different outside of prison. When we exhibit our self-will, when we try and make sure that I get mine, we aren't proceeding anywhere. We're like the elder and the younger son. We're just lost. So the first key to be found, if we want to be found, we have to realize that we don't know what we want. We don't. That's part of the fall. When we fell, we lost our senses. If we hadn't lost our senses, we wouldn't sin. Because sin is an offense against an infinitely holy God who told you he would never forget that you sin and kill you for it. And yet we choose to participate in sin frequently. So we're insane. And so you mean to tell me that you know what you want. You don't know what you want. You know what will make you happy right now. But you don't know what you need five minutes from now. You don't know where that happiness that you enjoy today will take you tomorrow. You have no idea. You think the people that overdosed knew that that was their last dose? Some of them maybe, most of them not. You think those people that took that first drug that ruined their life, their family, their business, took everything from them, you think they knew that was what was going to take them? Of course not. They did it because they wanted it. They wanted that temporary high. They wanted that temporary experience, and they sold everything to get it. If you want to be found, if you're tired of being lost, the first step is to realize that you don't know what you want. 
that you can keep going and flirting with boys and see if that gets you, or flirting with girls and see if that gets it for you. You can keep putting people down. You can keep esteeming yourself above others. You can keep doing that, and that's called being lost. But if you want to be found, you have to come to the realization that we don't know what we want. And what we want because of our fallen nature leads to death. And death is absolute in this life and for eternity. And so when we come to our senses like that younger son, and like we don't know what happened to the elder son because Jesus doesn't finish the parable, when we come to our senses, we realize, like the younger son, that all along we never really knew what we wanted. Because, see, he, went out, he, went, he got to go out and experience everything he thought would make him happy, didn't he? He, he thought he could go to a faraway land and participate in that lifestyle, and he did it. He did it. He went and got what he wanted, right? But at the end of the day, he found out it wasn't what he wanted. At the end of his day, he realizes, I'm better off going home. And in this, guys, this is key. Does the father ever change in the story? He doesn't. It doesn't go through the contracts on the son, but the son knew he was going back to be the father's servant. But suddenly, the change was in that he realized that being a servant to his father was better than being a servant to anybody else, himself included. And that is why we look at all these gods. Because if we're not being a servant of the one true God, we're being a servant to some other God of our own imagination. And God's here this morning to tell you that you don't know what you want. You don't. You know what can make you happy today. You know what all the other cool kids are doing. You know what you want right now, but you don't know where it's going to take you. And he calls out to you, and he says, stop, and just come home. Now, coming home, <laughs> can you imagine if the younger son would have come home and been like, okay, Dad, here's the thing. I'm back, but here's what I like, okay? I like my room back, and I like three servants to take care of me, and then I like to go in and out, and if you give me 50 more bucks, I'd like to run back to town for a minute. That's crazy. We know it wouldn't have worked, would it? What did the son do? He went back and said, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but here's the thing. If you make me the lowest of the low in your house, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And that was the moment he was found. So the question is, where are we at this morning? Are we lost? Or have we been found? You guys, it's so simple. He has shown the old man what is good and what the Lord requires of you to love justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What is God, and John mentioned this the other day, what is God showing you today that you aren't doing? It's that simple. You want to experience all of this, all the power, the ability to do mighty exploits, the ability to experience God in a way that gives you new life when you get out of bed in the morning? It's as simple as this. Obey my commands. You will be my people, and I will be your God. So what's God asked you to do that you aren't doing? Delaying your obedience is no different than disobedience. If I tell my kids to go clean their room, and an hour later I come up and they're still playing toys, in my mind that's disobedience. Do we think it's any different with God? Guys, it's that simple. Christianity is not complicated. There's simplicity in Christ. It all comes back to, are you willing to let him be your Lord? Guys, if you've been saved, there's things that God expects you to do. God expects you to be water baptized. God expects you to be filled with the Spirit. God expects you to participate in a daily walk with Him. Let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We can't say we're Christians and we're walking with God if we're not being led. If God has no say-so over our life, then we can't call ourselves by His name. If we would call Himself by His name, we must submit ourselves to His rule. Is God telling you to break up with so-and-so? Then you better do it. Is God telling you to go there or do that? Is God telling you, here's an example from my life, is God telling you to quit being so sarcastic and cutting people down? Then I better do it. Because maybe I'm the Jesus that people are going to see today. 
But more than that, regardless of what everybody else, maybe because I want that life to be in me and come out through me. Maybe because I just want to experience what the God of the universe, it must be like to have that kind of walk with Jesus. Parents, we have a responsibility. There are very clear-cut expectations on us as parents. We are forming our idea our kids' idea of what God looks like and who God is and how God operates and what God's priorities are, are we taking that serious? And young people thinking about getting married don't think you're going to know if you get married all of a sudden you get a parenting handbook. You don't. Your heart doesn't change. If you're lost before you get married, you'll be lost after you get married. And even if you never get married, guys, there's expectations on all of our lives. Regardless of whether or not we have kids, we are still forming other people's opinion of who God is. Now let me ask you this. By looking at your life, would anyone know that the God of heaven leaps off his throne and rejoices every time a lost person comes home? Would they know that by your life? Looking at your life, would people know that there's such thing as lost people and found people? Or by looking at your life, would people be in confusion as to how there could be any difference? You see, guys, we... We've got to know all this stuff because it's who God is and it enables us and empowers us to live for God. We've got to get this stuff into our heart. This has got to be the heartbeat of our life is this stuff we call theology or understanding who God is. But at the end of the day, stuffing it in doesn't do anything if it never comes out. As David said, I was young and now I'm old. You guys, it doesn't matter how old you are. I don't care about how old you get. Let's all live for Jesus today. Let's all experience Jesus today. Okay, and it's that simple. Like John said, lots of times I think God's just dealing with us on one thing. And lots of times it's the smallest thing. Maybe all you need to do, maybe you're living good. (laughs) Maybe all you need to do is just wake up in the morning and admit his lordship over your life for that day. Maybe that's it. Maybe that would change everything about how you live that day. And maybe the result of that would be experiencing this. And maybe that's what you've really wanted the whole time. You turn over to John 14. John closed here, and I'm going to close here. John 14, starting in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's simple. That's it. But we all know how hard that is to do, don't we? We all know that it's incredibly hard to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, without blemish and without reproach. We all know that it's hard to live in darkness and be light. We all know that, right? So Jesus doesn't just leave us with a command. He says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that the comforter might abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world shall see me no more, but you shall see me. Because I live, you shall live also. At that day you shall know that I am in the Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that has my commandments and keeps them is he that loves me, and he will be loved of me, shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself unto him. Guys, our God is also unique in his Trinity, right? And we've been instructed to read with our Trinitarian lenses on. Did we get it? Did we get what happens because you're obedient? I read five promises in that out of your one response. What were they? The first one is that Jesus will intercede on your behalf. It says, if you obey my commandments, I will pray to the Father. Think about that. See, this is where all self-determination dies. This is where I'm going to get up and try harder dies. Because you realize that you can't. You realize that you've done it, you've tried and you failed, and now you need something more. And so Jesus gives you this promise. He says, today, if you hear my voice, harden not your heart, but listen. Now here's what I want you to do. After you've submitted, after you've come home, none of this works before you come home. It doesn't work in the pig pen. It only works when you come home. The elder son had to come into the party before he could be part of the party. It doesn't work if you're still lost. We understand that, right? But for those of us that have been found, those of us who have admitted the Lordship of Christ, those of us who are prepared to see His will exhibited through the course of our lives, those people, He says, obey my commands. And we say, okay, Lord, but it's so hard to do. He says, well, here's the deal. You obey my commands, and I'll pray to the Father. 
So you've got the intercession of the Son, the Son who created all and for all things were created for Him. So at the end of the day, you stand before Him and see how your life does. He says, I will go and pray to the Father to make sure you, you make it, to make sure you get what you need. And the Father's response to that prayer is what? Two, I will send the Spirit. So the Father's response to the Son's prayer on your behalf is to send you a comforter, a helper, to help you do what He wants you to do. I told you there's no God like our God. There's no God that within himself provides everything that you need. So you go and you say, God, I want to be obedient. I surrender my life to you. I want to live for you tomorrow. Jesus says, awesome. I go to the Father who's rejoicing. And he says, Father, I want to pray for that guy right there. And the Father says, all right, I'll send the helper. The helper comes down and picks up residence in your life. And then the next thing that happens is Jesus says, he comes down and takes residence in your life. And then the third, uh, third thing is that Jesus promises to never leave. He says that when I come, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come, but I will come back again, and I will stay here forever. And finally, it says, and you will live in my love. And the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Holy Spirit. You will be a recipient of divine love. Why? Because you obeyed my commandments. There is simplicity in Christ. There is simplicity in living for Jesus. We complicate it. There is simplicity in Christ. Do you love me? Obey my commandments. If you obey my commandments, I will pray to the Father. He will send the Comforter. The Comforter will lead and guide you in what you should know. The Comforter will empower you to do what you need to do. The Son will come and pick up residence in your life. The Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit will meet in perfect love in your heart. And you'll get to experience that on a day-to-day basis. There is no God like our God. No God. So what is the personal power? What is the power of a personal God? It's this. It's that he's the perfect master. So our response to that is that we need to go home. We go home and we submit to his rule. And in doing that, we can experience what it's like to live under a perfect master. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're not like the other gods and that you haven't left us alone, that you haven't left us on our own to figure this out, Father, but you said you've come and that you'd pick up residence in our heart, Father. And I pray for myself and every person here, Father, that's been moved to submit more to you, Father, to experience you more, Father. I ask that you would even now pray to the Father on our behalf, Father, that we would be faithful and strong. And that the result of this, Father, is a people who are mighty and do exploits, God, regardless of what is going on around us. And that, God, that we would all get to experience personally the power that comes with the fact that there is a personal God who loves us and who is intimately and personally involved in seeing our salvation, Father, and seeing us experience his complete and full salvation, Father. Let us be ever more thankful for this, Father, and be with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.